Well, welcome. It's good to be with you today. Hope that you have uh, been drawn into worship by confession and repentance as the passages and the time in the word and the time in song have indicated. Uh, that last song that Amy just played, Great is Thy Faithfulness, I, I'm just reminded, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God our Father, there's no shadow of turning with Thee, Thou changest not, Thy compassions they fail not, as Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. I was just reminded um, last night, many of you know the Clarks, Bill and Darlene. Uh, Darlene left her earthly home and entered her heavenly home last night about 10 o'clock. And if you knew Darlene at all, you knew that she lived a life that reflected her relationship with Christ all of her life. She came to know Christ young. She was very much involved around here. You, if you've been here a while, you know who she is. She was very much involved in decorating everything, always very gracious, making sure people felt at home. We, our first couple months here, she was a big encourager to our family as we were making the change to Berean and just went out of her way, she and Bill both. She went to be with her master, and there's no question in anyone's mind that that's where she went. And it's a, very, it's a great um, encouragement to know that uh, that's our hope. I was able to share with the family and pray with them. You know, First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that um, to be absent, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. She departed there in that hospital room and into the presence of Christ, and there she'll remain. And so for us, a temporary parting, one that leaves a big hole, but one we know will soon be mended. And that's a great hope, isn't it? Because we don't sorrow as those with no hope. It's hard, as we prayed in the hospital room after she went into Jesus' presence. It's hard. It's, you grieve because you weren't ready for them to depart, but in the same respect, it was a joy to know that she left here and went there, and we're soon to follow. So keep them in prayer, if you would, particularly Bill, as it was very hard for him. You're never ready to let go of your spouse of many, many years of marriage, and so it was hard for him, but also a joy, too, that he was able to uh, be there with her. And so keep them in your prayer. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's what we do, so we'd like to do that today. Turn... 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 33, and let the Holy Spirit go to work through his word as we will then come back and, and take in uh, the passage we're going to look at today. We're not going to get through all of that today, that's no surprise to you, but look at verse 16 as we read together. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I may also boast a little. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I'm reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the seats around you. Verse 17, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness. In this confidence of boasting, verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also, verse 19, for you also being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone hits you in the face. Verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Verse 23, I speak as if insane. I more so in far more laborers, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death. 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 20, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Verse 26, I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, oft without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak, and who's led into sin without my intense concern? Verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse 32, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. Verse 33, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Stop right there. Martin Luther is noted for saying, if, if we consider the greatness of the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of the world. He said, if I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonments, but I shall also say, Oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed, which has come to me through the merit of Christ. Oswald Chambers, in his book, Christian Dis Discipline, put it in a unique way. He said, suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. He says, each one of us, each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified, the penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified by these signs we know the widespread heritage of suffering. It was noted at the Nicene Council, which was an important church meeting in the 4th century, of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or a hand or did not limp on a leg, lamed by torture for their Christian faith. Of the 318 delegates, delegates fewer than 12 had not been injured in some way in persecution for their faith. And as we move into this new section today, I, I think it seems appropriate to remind ourselves of these things as we see our passage has that thread of suffering running through it. And, and these things are the things that the Apostle Paul doesn't like to draw attention to, but he has been put in a position that in spite of all the work he has put in and the love he's shown the church, some have been taken captive by false teachers who have claimed preeminence in the church. Denigrating Paul, they've begun to replace the solid teaching and doctrine that Paul's brought to the church over 18 months of physically pastoring the church and a total of four letters written and several visits both by he and by Titus. And these false teachers have come, as we've seen in the past, in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, preached another Jesus whom we have not preached and different spirit which you have not received which implied which we didn't preach to you and a different gospel again which we didn't preach to you which you have not accepted and some of the church have accepted those things they've begun to adjust their thinking around this false doctrine being deceived like Eve in the garden thinking that they didn't have all the information before but now they do 
and now they have the whole truth. But Paul makes it clear that these guys that they're listening to, verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they're not the real deal, and they're like every babbler of error today. Just about anyone, if you look in the modern church, just about anyone can be hailed as a messenger of God and Christ by largely, I think, an unregenerate and certainly often undiscerning Christianity. I mean, if you just come along today and you say you're from God or you speak for Christ, you can really say anything you want and nobody will really question you. And if you come along and you really point out the error, then you're just labeled as jealous and, and, and you wish you had the power of the Spirit like we do. That's kind of the general answer. But as we figured out last week, not only are they false apostles, deceitful workers, and disguised as those sent by Jesus, they learned how to disguise themselves, we saw, from none other than Satan himself. Verse 14 says, For no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The false teachers disguise themselves as apostles, so they looked the part, but we saw there's no such thing as a modern-day apostle, because that's a very small section of the first-century group that could even qualify, an even smaller section than what actually were, so they, they, they pretend like they're apostles. We see that today. And, and then Paul says, no wonder for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. And then Paul indicates he isn't speaking hypothetically. And then he identifies these teachers. He says in verse 15, therefore, it's not surprising, he says, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So the question is, why are Satan's servants in the church in disguise? Which we know that they are. Uh, because Paul makes it very clear that that's going on in the first century. We know it's gone on since that time. We don't have to look uh, at any kind of podcast for very long to realize it's still there. So why are they there in disguise? Well, it's to trick the church. It's to deceive the church, just like in the first century. It's to get the church off course, to take advantage of the church, any number of those things and more. And, and there's so much ugliness, even in the early church, so it doesn't surprise us that we see that today in churches led by false teachers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul says this, and we, we skipped to that point last time and skipped over 16, 17, 18, 19, because this had to do with what the false teachers were doing. And he says to the church, he says, you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. They don't know they've been enslaved, obviously, then and now, uh, but they've lost their freedom in Christ, and now they are subservient. That's what that means to be a slave to the whole false system of belief and taken captive. And we see that in churches filled with what we know to be false teachers being taken in over and over again. So we know it's still going on. And they devour you, he said, and that still happens. And that really has to do with money. And this is the most recent topic that Paul has had to deal with with the church. So he comes back to it. They're berating Paul about not taking any money from the Corinthian church. And if there's anything true about false teachers, they get their hands on the money as much as they can, as long as they can. And then he says they take advantage of you, literally, that is the word for fishnet, so they're caught, if you will, like a fish in a net, fooled and caught because of their gullibility, because they don't have any discernment, because they don't know what the Word of God says, they're not spending any time reading it, not spending any time understanding it, not spending any time under the Word of God in church, and so they're easily taken in. And then he says they exalt themselves, false teachers always want to make themselves look important, and so he says that's what it looks like, and then they hit you in the face, and we saw last time, probably figuratively, of a lack of respect, of condescension, that occurs there. To a false teacher, the people mean nothing to them, just a means to end. They don't love people like a faithful under-shepherd does. They don't give themselves away for people. They don't give up anything, really, and they just take for all they can get, and they just suck the people dry for their own benefit, because, and, because, and they do this because people are gullible, and they enslave them to the system. That's the whole 
you know, you remember this, the whole send us $100 and we'll send you a prayer cloth you can put on for a miracle. And tens of thousands of people did that and continue to do very similar things. And then back at verse 15, it says this, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's where we ended last time. This is a a stern warning to false teachers, very stern as we looked at a number of those we won't look at again. But everyone who teaches the word of God, everybody who leads the church, we saw this last time, uh, which is Christ's body, is held to a very strict standard. In fact, James says, be not many teachers for those, for to those are the greater condemnation. So when you open the Bible, you begin to teach a Bible study, you're teaching the church, uh, you are held to a higher standard, very strict standard. And, and those who teach falsely, those who don't put the time in, are going to be marked out for judgment based, and, and particularly in false teachers' uh, regard, based on a life of deception. In other words, they say one thing, but they don't live that way at all. Their life is completely different. And God's pretty serious about error, and he's pretty serious about corrupting the truth. And he's been that way throughout all the ages. Back in the time of the prophets, he was pretty concerned about that, that they make sure they say what they're supposed to say. And to the true prophets, he told them, don't drop any words I'm going to tell you. Make sure you say them all. And to the false ones, he says, I didn't send you, and I didn't tell you what to say, and yet you went anyway. So he's, he's, he's pretty concerned about that even from the time he first communicated to the Jewish people. So we move into the New Testament time, and, and Jesus is talking in, in Mark 9, 42. We didn't get to this passage last time, so I want to end up with this as our review. Uh, Jesus was pretty serious concerning them, uh, those who would harm the church, as he talks about those who come in childlike faith, which is every individual who comes to faith in the church. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if... Uh, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. That's pretty stern and strict, wouldn't you say? I mean, we think about that. In other words, it'd be better if they just killed themselves than do what they've done. And so God's serious about those that hurt the believers. He's serious about those who damage the church. And false teachers, as we saw at the end of verse 15, their ends will be according to their deeds. They fall into that category. Now, as we think about that prelude to the get to this point where Paul's going to talk about himself, the question is, how can we sum up 2,000-year-old example whose symptoms read like a Stephen Furtek website or um, sound like a Joel Olstein church service or a Beth Moore video series? How do, how do we sum up what we just got through seeing? Well, a couple of things I think we can remember if, if this is helpful to you. Number one, don't be deceived by clever spiritual-sounding words because it's amazing how hard people will work to sell the deception because that's how Satan's workers work. They know precisely what the Bible says, and they're able to change that so that it sounds right to your ear, but isn't right. Flattering words, spiritual-sounding words, masks sometimes Satan himself, teaching a different Jesus. We saw that, a different spirit, a different gospel, modifying the clear teaching of the Word of God to fit a modern society norm. That's a very popular thing in the progressive church anymore, and it can be couched in very spiritual-sounding terms. Language we understand can mask demonic doctrine just because they talk about God just because they talk about Christ and the gospel and the spirit of the Bible doesn't make it true in fact Satan always does that because that's the deception it's not him coming at us from the outside as with abortion or with a fluid gender or or homosexual relationship we understand that's wicked the church pushes that off typically I mean modern churches not so much more the mainline Protestant churches not so much but typically a church with discernment pushes that off the real problem is when a deceiver's in the pulpit see the real problem is when a deceiver has come in and is in leadership. They seem to be spiritual, but they're not, and they're leading the church in an incorrect way. Number two, in that same vein, as you think about this 2,000-year-old example of the symptoms we see today, 
when it comes to doctrinal error, tolerance is not a virtue. And we said this at the beginning, it doesn't matter how many people hold the position in sincerity. Because in general, the church would fall into that category anymore. They think that everything's true because many people hold it in sincerity. And you'll go to seminaries and they won't teach their own doctrinal statement because they're, they say, well, other people hold different positions. And we always say, really? That's a surprise to anyone that you don't hold a clear doctrinal position that the Bible supports? That's not a surprise, but not a reason why you don't teach clear doctrine and the truth. And so just because a lot of people hold it doesn't make it true. You don't read very far in Scripture to see that. And God's opinion on something doesn't change, and he had a high expectation for those who claim to represent him. And Christian love, mark this, beloved, Christian love is not to be equated with gullible sentimentality. Okay? So it's all on the basis of truth. And then number three, don't overlook the issue of money. As you're thinking about ministries that you're listening to, as you're, you're subscribing to an RSS feed from somebody, remember, this was a big deal in this whole discussion with the Apostle Paul. And, and he just came off of uh, chapters 8 and 9, talking about the New Testament standard for the management of money. Then he comes in here, and then they're accusing him, oh, you must not love us because you don't take any money from the church, but you take it from other people. And in the past, he's been accused of just being in it for the money. So this is a big deal. And so we remember, as you're thinking about ministries, look at personal wealth. Look at lifestyle. Look how it's gained, how it's spent. See what the peddler of pop religion does with what comes in, because religion is big money. Because gullible people are everywhere. And that's big business. So what happens there? Because we live in a world today where there are denominations and there are preachers and seminaries and schools where they deny the scripture. Representatives of churches that mouth Marxist slogans. TV evangelists becoming millionaires multiple times over at the expense of people. And, and, and this is not a time to be fooled by words. This is not a time to be naive about money. It's not a time to be sentimental about tolerance. It's no time to be gullible. And you can avoid all of that and protect yourself against that by knowing the truth, by being in it. Now, as we think about that, now we go back to verse 16 because we skipped up to verse 20. Go back to verse 16. We'll work our way on down as far as we can get today. The transition to verse 16 uh, can be found in a number of places because this is where the church has left Paul. He has to defend himself as a true apostle and by that defense then uh, give credence to everything he's taught them. He wants to bring them back away from false doctrine. And so he's going to talk about why he's to be believed and they shouldn't. And we've marked that all the way through from chapter 10 to now. We've made some marks about what a true apostle looks like and what a false one looks like. And you can catch up on all that on Spotify. But the most recent place where he is indicating where he's headed is found in 2 Corinthians 11.10. You can look there in your copy of God's Word. As the truth of Christ is in me, he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. So he's not going to, he's not going to, you know, just continue what he's been doing around there. See, he's not just going to point out the things God's accomplished through him there in Achaia. He's going to point out a lot of stuff that the Lord has done to support the fact that they should be listening to him. And, and again, a good illustration because the Bible explains the Bible. 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says this. This is how he's come about it up till now. He says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. What is that, Paul? That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Just, verse 14, as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. What's the deal? Well, here's it. Paul says, in my conscience, I have nothing accusing me. I have a, 
I have conducted myself both in the world apart from you and with you in exactly the same way in godly sincerity. And, and by the grace of God, that's my witness, he says. And, and towards you, I've been this way, and you know this, and you've understood us part way, and he's hoping they'll come along for the rest of the ride. Or 2 Corinthians 3.2, where he reminds those who think he needs credentials, you know, do you have a letter, Paul, to introduce us back to, to introduce you back to the church? What's he say in verse 2? He says, you are our letter. Look around in the church and see what's going on there. Realize this is the Corinthian church in this island. It's an island of Christianity in the sea of paganism in, in Corinth. You're our letter. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You're in our hearts, and people see what you're doing, and they realize God's at work there. That's our introduction to you. So you can see how he's coming in very softly towards the church up until now. And, and he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For you know how we, for we ourselves did not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And so that's an important, I think, an important point to, to, to show us here is that, um, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven ten, as the cru- truth of Christ is in me, as a, just give me a second here, and we'll get back where we need to be. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. That's where he's been, and he just got through saying a number of those things that he's done there. You're our letter, known and read by all men. You know, um, uh, the truth of Christ is in me, and and you're my proud confidence. You know, all the things that the people see you doing is my introduction to you. So Paul has really soft padded his his uh, credentials and his qualifications. And then he says, but I'm not just going to stop here. You know about me here. So he's going to keep going. And he sets up this new section, and he starts with an apology, as he indicates the mark of a true apostle. Verse 16, he says this. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. Now, you can tell right away, as Paul begins to talk about himself, because he continues to keep putting it off, Paul's not comfortable with this stuff. And he's only having to say it because the church has been gullible and listened to false teachers and boast about themselves. Now, Paul's very comfortable talking about his weaknesses. He doesn't mind doing that. He's very comfortable talking about his inabilities. He talks a lot about being the chief of sinners. He likes saying that he is what he is by the grace of God. He's very, very comfortable saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's like, don't look at the vessel. It's ugly. But what's in it? Okay, I'm not giving you something and I want you to say it's worth something because it's coming out of this beautiful vessel. He goes, I'm not beautiful. He goes, but what I'm giving you is valuable. He's very comfortable saying he's a former blasphemer who persecuted the church, but he really doesn't like talking in a boastful way about his credentials. And so we also know that when he starts, he isn't going to say any more than it's true. Uh, He's not going to boast about things he didn't do. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, 15, we saw that, remember? He said, I'm not going to boast beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors. That's what typically boasters do. They boast about stuff, but they didn't do all of it. It's not all credited to them. That's what was happening in Corinth with the false teachers. They were saying, hey, look at this church. I mean, this is wonderful. And they're taking credit for some of the stuff that was done there. So Paul says, listen, I'm not going to boast in other men's labors. But with this hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. As you begin to see what's going on here, you're going to be giving us the credit that we uh, certainly deserve. And so he says in verse 16, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. And, and these, next, these next verses, 
seem to be a parenthetical statement. Look at verse 17 there in your copy of God's word. So he says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. And then verse 17, he says, parenthetically, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. In other words, he's kind of filling that in. I'm not saying this as the Lord would want me to say it, but as foolishness in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast also. He's like, this is not what I want to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to boast a little. And then he's very sarcastic. Look at verse 19. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. And you can see we're kind of moving quickly through these passages more quickly than we normally do. And the reason we're doing this is what we're getting is a narration of Paul's life. And so what we're going to do is we look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul has had to go through. If there's some references, we'll, we'll connect to them so you can see that he went through these kinds of things. But for the most part, we're just going to relate this to you and we're going to pull out the lessons I think that are uh, most obvious that this is what true Christianity looks like. And certainly throughout the ages, it's what it looks like in the church. So Paul says, for verse 19, very sarcastic, for you being so wise, tolerate foolish gladly. So he said, I'm going to be foolish, and you tolerate foolishness because you're so wise. What's he mean? Well, you're wise, all right. You know, you were duped by pretenders. They're coming in. They're, they're, they look like they're, they're apostles of Christ, but they're not, and you fell right for them. You're not wise enough to recognize you've been enslaved, devoured, taken advantage of, brought into subjection and demeaned. So if you're, if you're wise enough, tongue-in-cheek, to figure that out, then you're just going to deal with me, I think, uh, in my foolishness. And, and that refers back to that verse 20, where you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, exalts himself, hits you in the face. So we're going to move on from there, Paul says. You, you were taken in by that, and that was foolishness, so you can bear with me here. And then verse 21, he says this. He says, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. In other words, Paul says, compared to how they took you in and what that looked like, I'm pathetic. I mean, they just took you in hook, line, and sinker. I'm not going to get away with nearly as much as they did. I'm not that clever. And Paul's okay with being thought of as weak, even to those who pretend to be apostles. And then he goes on to say, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, parenthetically, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as bold myself. And this is, this is difficult balance. Paul's being accused of certain things. He's being demeaned by the church. He's being undercut by false doctrine. And so he's going to come back. He's got a lot of people in the church who, who think he's a fraud, don't, don't uh, value his, what he's done all that time. And what's he going to do? He's going to come back and just defend himself. And that's a hard thing to balance, isn't it? You know, it, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 18, listen to what he says here because this kind of helps you get an idea of where his attitude is. You yourself know, so they were witnesses of all this, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he came from Corinth to the church in Ephesus, how it was with you the whole time, how I was. Verse 19, serving the Lord with, mark this, all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Serving the Lord with some humility. Serving the Lord with a little humility. No, serving the Lord with all humility. He put himself under them, as we saw earlier, as their servant, a bond servant. So you're our letter written on our hearts. All men can see it. You know, puts himself under everybody. I'm hum uh, humble, he said. And, and when a guy can say that to his people, follow the pattern of my humility, he's really set a pretty strict course for his life, hasn't he? Because if you violate that, then everybody's going to say, well, you know, he says one thing, but he does something else. So if he's going to, mark this, if he's going to maintain his integrity, then he has to maintain his humility, right? So he's going to brag on himself. Is it possible then to do that? You know, 
He, he sought to be truly humble. He learned that from Jesus, right? Jesus who said, learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly, Matthew 11. He learned it from Jesus, whom Paul wrote about in Philippians 2, right? He thought it not something to grasp, to be equal with God, but emptied himself, made himself the form of a servant, remember? Even to the point of death. So that's Paul's example. That's what he wants to come to the church with. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, he talks about how he approached the ministry in the church. Give no offense either to Jew or Greek or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not sinking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be what? It's all about the gospel, right? He didn't want to put any roadblocks in the way in any form that would keep people from following Jesus. So, and then he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, here it is, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And again, you know, when a man leads in this way, he's giving no offense. Now, this is important, not that none can be taken, Okay, it's important to differentiate that. Some people may think, oh, you really offended me. That doesn't mean that happened, okay? But he actually gave no offense, and he set a very high standard for his life. And then he says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Christ was humble, perfectly humble, and Christ was the pattern that Paul followed. And so this whole idea of boasting then, in that context, was repulsive to him. He saw it as, he saw it as foolish. He saw it as fleshly. But, but mark it. Here he's about to boast. And so, and he doesn't really start, if you look, read ahead a little bit, it takes him all the way to verse 22 to actually get some traction. You just can't get to it. It's so distasteful to him that he just keeps talking about other things and keeps giving disclaimers over and over again. So, he doesn't want to be misunderstood. And so the question is, as we just, just uh, talked about just a minute ago, is it possible that he can defend himself and say what's actually true and be humble at the same time? And most people would say, what? No. It's not possible for you to boast and also be humble. Most people would say that. It's, it's not possible to defend your credentials and be humble. And, and many pastors have to go through this over and over around the country. They're falsely accused or they have to do something hard in the church that some people don't like. And, and there'll be a group that denigrates his authority or, or to do that or his ability or misconstrue something that happened because they don't know the whole story. And they would say, no, no, no. When you start to defend yourself, you, you, you're just proving that you're wrong, right? You're, you're arrogant or you're both. So, but the real answer, though, is Paul says, I was with you in all humility. And he says, um, I give no offense either to Jew or Greek. The real answer is, yes, it's possible that Paul and we sometimes are forced to do a reasonable and honest and fair defense of why we've done what we've done and why we have the right and the authority to do it. And so Paul's going to do that. It's not an easy challenge, and I think it helps us understand a little bit. Uh, it's instructional in the tension that's here with Paul as he's trying to balance this all out. Uh, it helps us understand what still goes on in the modern church today. It's not an easy challenge. Paul knew it, uh, but we'll see as we get into the defense. See, it's not a happy occasion. You never feel good about it. Uh, but, and Paul says it's not sin, it's just folly to have to do it. And then we get to starting verse 22. It's going to run all the way through chapter 12, verse 13. All of this recounting of the things that he's been through, the Lord has taken him through in places other than Corinth. Now, I think it's important as we get into uh, verse 22 that the more we read through this, and this struck me this week as I was studying this, the more we read through this, the more he gives his apostolic credentials the more humble you realize he really was. 
do you get that? I mean, did you catch that even in, in from 16 to 32? When you start thinking about everything Paul went through, he didn't walk into the church and say, hey, you know, I've spent a night and a day in the deep. One of my biggest fears, by the way, being out on the ocean, floating in the water a night and a day. I would hate that. Um, I'm an always in danger of my countrymen. I'm in danger of brigands. I'm in danger of cold and heat and hunger and thirst. So now listen to me. So he doesn't, he doesn't walk in like that. That's not his bio that people read before he walks up to the podium, right? We like that, don't we? We want somebody to read all about how great we are. And then we come and speak, and then they're like, wow, we can't wait to hear what he has to say. I remember one time James Dobson came to Liberty to do um, commencement, and it was one of those huge bios that somebody thought it was important to read, and it took about five minutes to read through it. And he is a very qualified individual and a wonderful guy, and he walks up, and I love this. You know what he said? First thing he goes, Wow. I can hardly wait to hear what I have to say. That was perfect. That was perfect, right? That was the right balance to that. He's like, he was embarrassed that they said all that stuff. And he's like, wow, I, I must be great. But Paul didn't do that. He didn't have people read those things. Our letter is you, he said. You don't need an introduction letter for me. So it's not an easy challenge. And, and, and when you read that, you just think how humble he really is because he doesn't talk about this anywhere. Now look at verse 22, and then we'll look at verse 23, and then we're going to come back, and you'll see why in just a minute. Verse 22 says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Now let's read verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often danger of death. Now, as you read both of those two, what's the difference between the first and the second one? In verse 22, he says, so am I. So am I, so am I. So he's equal to their claims. But in verse 23, what's he say? I more so, I far more, he's far superior. So you see where he's going. He's not only going to match them credit for credit, he's going to go way beyond what they've done. And that's what he warned them about. He's like, you know, they're boasting about being a really great apostle, but when it compares to what we've done, if I just keep doing what I've been doing, it's going to expose them as a fraud. And so Paul's getting right to the meat of it right here. And so, now look back at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? It's just a, this is one of those places where we'll, we'll pull out some things I think that are instructional for us. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So you can imagine then, it's like listening to a one-sided conversation. Somebody's talking on the phone. You can't hear the question, but you hear the answer. Apparently, they've been accusing Paul of, of not fitting the qualifications of being an apostle because he was born in Tarsus, which is a Gentile city and therefore indicating he didn't belong in the group of apostles. And, and maybe they didn't know his lineage, but more likely they did, but some of the people in the church did not. That was even more likely because they wouldn't care. They're Gentiles in a Gentile city. They don't care about what goes on in Jerusalem or whether Paul had the credentials or not, and they wouldn't even know this. So the, the false teachers come in, and they have an advantage because the people don't know what it takes to be an apostle, and they don't know Paul's lineage. And so they just denigrate Paul and say, hey, he's not qualified because he's from Tarsus, and that's a Gentile city. And obviously, Paul wants to answer that. And it's right. True apostles are Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking Jews of Palestine. And so he's going to answer this in three ways, but it's really saying the same thing. It's just going to qualify him equal to what they say they are. Are they Hebrews, he says. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. And that refers to the Jewish people ethnically and linguistically. So... They're people who are associated with the Hebrew language, and we can see that in Genesis 11. That's the table of nations. If you read through there, there's a person there named Eber, 
and Abraham is his descendant, and Eber is probably the one who contributed the word Hebrew, at which was the name first given to Abraham in Genesis 14, 13. So probably it goes back to the fact that he's a descendant from Eber. So it began to be what foreigners would refer to when they referred to the Jews. They referred to them as Hebrews, descendants of Eber. And, and the Jews also used it of themselves, and you can find that through Genesis 40 and Genesis 43 on your road. So although Paul is born in Tarsus, and he's still a Hebrew in every sense. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 5, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means that when it came to nationality, when it came to ethnicity, when it came to linguistics, he was every bit of a Hebrew. He lived his whole life in Palestine, and he followed all the Hebrew traditions to the very letter, even as a Pharisee. And just to, just to illustrate that a little bit, as we do from time to time, this is apparently an issue in his life, because in Acts 22, he says to them, he goes, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, uh, who was the premier teacher of the Jewish law of his day. So, strictly according to the law of the fathers, he said, being zealous for God just as you are today. So that was part of his defense there as he was going through the defenses there in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 26, in verse 4, he says, so then, and mark this, as he talks about his life, he says, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. And here's the, here's a parenthetical statement that's, that's the rub. If they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our, of our religion. So he says, look, if you think you're a Hebrew, so am I. You don't have any better qualification than I do. And he says, and all the Jews know me, if they're willing to say so. But the Gentile churches, as we pointed out, probably don't. So Paul's making sure the church in Corinth knows his background so they can trust that he is actually an apostle. And he fits that qualification of being a Hebrew in every sense, ethnically and linguistically. And then he says, are they Israelites, he says. And this is probably speaking in reference to their descendant Jacob. The Lord changed his name to Israel, remember, which speaks of their social life their religious life, their traditions and history, which he followed and knew well, the land. In fact, today's modern Jew calls himself an Israelite, but they're not referring to a relationship with God because many of them are atheists, but they're referring to their relationship to the land and their right to the land. Paul, of course, is thinking some of that, not his, uh, not, uh, he's, he believes in the Lord, of course, and is committed to Christ, but he takes his identity with that religious life, traditions, the histories, the land that they knew well, and the promises to society, to, to worship, all the things that go along with being an Israelite. And he says to the false apostles, he says, look, if you're an Israelite, so am I. You don't have any better for qualification than I do. And then he says, are they descendants of Abraham? And here he's indicating his covenant identification. In other words, he took his identity with God's chosen people uh, in the promised land that God had pledged to Abraham. He's enjoying this covenant privilege uh, the covenant promises, the blessings that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And you see that in Romans, right? He recounts what the Jews think in, Ro in Romans chapter 2. He says, you know, they have, the, they have the, the prophets, they have the law, they have the circumcision. He counted on all that in his former life. And so he says, look, if you think you're a descendant of Abraham, so am I. You don't have any better for qualification than I do. And if you remember, when Paul is talking about all this qualification, he begins to talk in Philippians 3, 4 about the pointlessness of all these accomplishments and credentials. And what does he say? He says in verse 4, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, 
Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees. So he goes backwards through the same qualifications that he just went frontwards through just a minute ago. As to zeal, and he adds this, a persecutor of the church. Listen, if you think you were solid Jew, I was even more so. I chased the church down, he said. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. We see that in Romans 7, don't we? I kept the law perfectly, every part of the law, until I read, do not covet, and then I coveted all over the place. And Paul talks about his transformation. But he says, listen, I, I, in the law, blameless. And then mark these words, verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, all of that, all those qualifications, Paul wants to make sure they understand in, in, in proportion to what he, how he evaluates it, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I wrote them all off. They weren't important in comparison to what the Lord had given me to do, which is to preach the cross of Christ. So the point here is he had all the right credentials to be chosen as an apostle from the standpoint of birthright, from the standpoint of heritage. And what he's saying then in verse 22 is I'm equal to them in my inherited credentials as far as race and religion goes. And then he starts in verse 23. And he says this. Look there if you would. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, oft in danger of death. So he gets to the real point now. The real point here is to show not that he's equal, but that he is superior. And that's been hard to come by. But he's finally arrived, and he's now willing to give his defense. And it's the defense of his superiority to those who claim to be the leaders now in Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians should stop listening to false teachers, in other words, and turn back and listen to what Paul has given them because he's superior to them in every way. And he does this, and as you read it, you realize he is maintaining his humility. He's not saying something he hasn't done. He's not boasting at someone else's accomplishments. He's just saying what's happened to him. And then he says in verse 3, look at the first part of it. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And it appears here that he's, it's very hard for Paul to actually ask the question. Are they servants of Christ? Are they, and here's the word he uses, diakonos. Are they table waiters for the church? And that's, of course, an official position in the church, but more, I think, the position is, do they really serve the church? Obviously, no. He just got through saying that they're masquerading as if they're an apostle, and they learned how to masquerade by Satan. So the whole thing is hard for him to even say. They're servants of the evil one. And that, that appears to be why he says, I speak as if insane. That's a common uh, verb, paraphroneo. It means to be beside oneself. Para is contrary to and friend is mind. So to be deranged. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? If you think they are, if I think they are, I'm deranged. I'm beside myself. Even, even if they were a servant of Christ, I abound. See, I more so. That's the word, uh, preposition hyper. Whatever level they claim, I'm way past that. And, of course, Paul knows they aren't at all. They don't serve the church at all. They serve themselves. So he says, I more so. Then he says, I worked harder, he says, in far more labors. I spent more time in jail. That's far more imprisonments. I can't even remember how many times I've been attacked. That's what it means, beaten time without number. And lots of people want to kill me, often in danger of death. Now, you read that, and I think the first thing you think is, wait, what? That sounds like a guy who needs to do a reality check on the way he's approaching life, if that's his daily experience, right? I mean, just from the outside looking in, uh, that's a guy who should hear a suggestion about changing his style of ministry. 
right? A guy who needs to read a book about ministry by Joel Osteen. Your best life now. I mean, he's missed that completely, right? I, if ever a guy needed to read a book on ministry by Joel Osteen, this is the guy, okay? If any guy needed a direction how to be seeker-friendly, make his approach to ministry less confrontive, right? Talk about sin less, talk about hell less, and more about how we're all good people, and God will bless you if you just copy this little scroll to ten of your friends. That's what that looks like, doesn't it? I mean, if you, th- if you look at that, you're just like, wow, this is the guy who needs a serious change in his approach. If he's had far more laborers and far more imprisonments and beaten time without number, and a lot of people want to kill him, it's not like he's making friends and influencing people very well. And I think, and we're, we're all out of time, so I'm going to say this, just kind of sum this up. I think what we can learn for these points in Paul's life, we're going to get quite a few of them, and we're going to get to see a number of them. And what we're going to see very clearly is a couple of things. First, we're going to see a picture of Christianity that through the ages, the world has known to be true. That's hard to hear, isn't it, in the place where we live? Because it's still true in many parts of the world, and I give you those examples from time to time. The missionary in Indonesia who constantly lived in danger of his life, and then they killed him. That's not that long ago. Remember that? It goes on constantly. So what we're going to see here, even though this is not our immediate experience, we're going to see um, a picture of Christianity that through the ages the world has known to be true and is still true in many parts of the world. And, and then if nothing else, I think, too, it helps us to understand and accept the hard times a little better, doesn't it? If you are going through some difficult times because of your Christian witness, if, if it has created some tension in your workplace or perhaps with your relatives or something because you want to make sure that they hear the gospel but they don't want to hear it, and so it's created some problems, I think it helps us accept those a little better. Don't, wouldn't you agree? Because you're probably not in danger of death, and you probably haven't been beaten time without number. And I think, too, it, it helps us appreciate the environment that is our reality in America where we can freely share the gospel, and we should get about it, right? And I think it helps us to realize that suffering for your faith is the norm. And, and I also think it holds out, and I think this is the, most, the one that kind of parallels the whole topic of the passage in Paul's teachers. I think it, it, um, it holds out in a really stark contrast the difference between the reality of being Jesus' disciple, which is what we see in the Apostle Paul, and this absurd falseness of prosperity gospel and easy believism that many churches teach today. If nothing else, it holds in huge distinction those two things. Would you not agree? As we read that kind of thing and we realize this was Paul's life, and this is the life of people who live right now in other places, and it helps us really hold in distinction. And so as you read through the Word of God, which is why I constantly encourage you, every day you should be in the Word of God, um, working through, as you read through the Word of God cover to cover on a daily, uh, yearly basis, but every day, you begin to see what Christianity actually looks like, which helps you have discernment and not be gullible when you hear ridiculous things that come from false teachers who have been in the church all along and are still here now telling you it's different than it really is. And so there's lots of things we can pull from here, and we're going to see, as I said, it will go through it much more quickly than we do the normal uh, ones that have a lot of doctrine in them, but I think it'll be a blessing to you nonetheless. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for just a wonderful time to be together. We thank you for your word. We love being in it. We love what it says. And Father, you have, as you said from your prophet Isaiah, 
you send out your word and you always accomplish exactly what you intend to accomplish with it, which is a big encouragement to me. Because as long as I can just read the word of God to the church, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, comparing scripture with scripture, you will accomplish what you want to accomplish and I won't mess that up. So, Father, I pray that you'll do that. And that there's any number of things you could be doing, and I don't pretend to know how your spirit's working in each life. But there's lots of, I think, ways to formulate our thoughts, certainly in comparison to how we perhaps have perceived Christianity up till now, maybe how we've managed our time or lack of it in the Word of God and in church or whatever it is. But perhaps it's a number of things. Uh, perhaps it's understanding the truth and then being able to confront error clearly by reading the Word and knowing what it says, to avoid being taken in by the many deceivers and shysters, uh, the ones who peddle the word of God, a babbler who says whatever he wants because he looks slick and has a great band behind him, but we can be clear that what's being said is wrong. Whatever it is, Father, I pray you work your way out in and through your church. Help us to be wise, not gullible. Servants who know what you say and then do what you say because that's how we show we love you. We can say we love you all day long. We don't do what you say. We just betray that we are liars and the truth's not in us. So, Father, I pray that your church will be pure. It'll be a bride that is uh, committed to doing what you say. It'll be a bride that knows what you say and is willing to give it out. And, and most of all, Father, uh, a bride that goes out and carries out the Great Commission, spreading the gospel to every creature and teaching them to observe all that you've commanded us. And then loving our neighbor as ourself and loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Very simple commands, very hard to live out. These are the things that you measure when you see us. I pray we've found well done, good and pleasing to you. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.